You're listening to the sermon series, The Songs of Jesus, at Sojourn East. In this series, we'll see the power of singing the stories of Jesus. We'll see how these songs are rooted in the promises of God, speak to our deepest longings, and equip us to bring all we are to Him. Today's scripture is from Luke 2, 8 through 14. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're in a series this month looking at different Christmas carols that help give some language to the season of Advent and help deepen our understanding of the meaning of what took place at Christmas. And so the last two weeks, we focused on songs that, that were about waiting and longing, which is a big theme in Advent. They're the, the minor keys of this season, you could say. This week, though, we're transitioning to the major key, and we're looking at a song that is filled with joy and tremendous hope. It's the song, Go Tell It, on the mountain. It's one of the most famous Christmas songs uh, that we have in our day. And the history of the song actually traces back to a dark period in our country's history. It traces back to slavery. This was a song, an African-American spiritual, that was written either by one slave or multiple slaves. We don't know. Um, And it was one of the few African-American spirituals that celebrated in particular the birth of of Christ. And the song itself is rooted in the text that we just read, Luke 2. It's a song that people, you know, from across the world, around our country and across the world have come to know and love because it captures some of the hope and the wonder and the joy of what takes place here in Luke. And so this morning we're going to press into this text and we're going to weave some of the the history of this song and some of the implications of this song with us as we go. I want to Uh, I want to look at this text under three headings, really simply. Uh, It's a simple text, it's a famous text, but it's very rich, very deep, and very powerful. But we're going to have a very simple outline. Number one, this text tells us why Jesus came. Number two, it tells us who he came for. And three, I want to talk about how he came. But starting with the why. Why did Jesus come? What's the meaning of Christmas? Well, the angels tell the shepherd in verse 2, or in verse 10, that Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Jesus came into the world to bring good news, not bad. Good news that would lead to great joy. And what is that news? Well, you go to verse 14, where the angels say, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So at the heart of the good news, at the heart of the great joy that Jesus came into this world to bring is this idea of peace. 
Now, peace on earth is something we hear at Christmas time. It's on some of our Christmas cards that we probably sent out. It's woven through some of our songs. And we talk about it, but I don't know if we necessarily understand what we mean when we say peace. Because if the angels meant peace on earth, like in that they meant political peace, international peace, the end of wars, the we are the world kind of peace, then can we all agree that if that's why Jesus came the first time, can we all agree that his mission was a failure? Because for the last 2,000 years, there's been a whole lot of violence and a whole lot of wars. Just this last century is the most violent and the bloodiest century in the history of the world. So Jesus, he didn't come the first time to bring international peace, peace among nations. The reason Jesus came the first time is to bring us peace with God. Hark the herald angel sings the very first line of the first verse, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. That's why he came, and this is the very heart of the gospel. He came to forgive us of our sins, to redeem us from our slavery to sin, and to reconcile us to God. Very heart of the gospel. But in that, he didn't just come to reconcile us to God. He came to reconcile us to one another as God's people. Jesus was born to bring us peace with God, but also to form a new community of peace which is the church. There's a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension to this. And I felt a deep conviction that this morning uh, God wanted me to focus in on this peace that Christ has come to bring among us as his people, as the church. We'll talk more about the peace with God he brings, and we'll talk about it today. But today I really wanted to focus in, focus in on how Jesus... He unites us, not just in his death, but also in his birth. And I think part of the reason I feel a burden to talk about this is just recognizing how deeply divided our country is and how the cracks seem to be ever-growing. We're divided politically. We're divided about morality. We're divided racially, economically. And then you add into all of that that in just a few weeks, the New Year's here, 2020. And 2020 is an election year. And I'll tell you that there are a few things that I've come to dread as much as election years as a pastor. I watch it divide people. I watch it, you know, kind of like throw gasoline on a fire. And so this morning I want to talk about unity and about the kind of community of peace Christ wants us to be, and I want you to see the value of it and how it's not just an add-on, but it's actually woven in to the very story of Christmas and to the story of the gospel. So uh, part of what inspired me is I was talking with Nora Allison. If you don't know Nora, you should. Nora leads our women's ministries here, and we were talking about the different birth narratives in the gospel, and one of the things that she pointed out that I'd never really noticed before is the tremendous diversity in the people involved in the birth narratives. So you have some older folks. You have Zechariah and Elizabeth, Simeon and Anna. They were all, the Bible says politely, they were all advanced in years. Uh, they made more progress than most people, but they're pretty old. Then you have Mary and Joseph, who were teenagers. Um, Mary and Joseph were really poor. 
But then you have the Magi, and they are these guys who lived a thousand miles away. They were high up, high ranking government officials in their home country, and they were actually very wealthy, and they brought their wealth, laid it at the feet of Jesus. And then you have these shepherds who are blue collar, ordinary guys. This is the community. When God was weaving together the strands of history, this story, he said, these are the people that I want involved. Old, young, rich, poor, Jews and Gentiles. And it wasn't just at his birth though, right? We see this throughout Jesus's ministry, his time on this earth, how he brings together very, very different people. Um, you think of even just the disciples. Some of the disciples, we don't have a whole lot of details. The ones we do, though, we know that four of the disciples were blue-collar fishermen. We know that one of the disciples, his name was Simon, and Matthew tells us he was called Simon the Zealot. The reason why is Simon, before he encountered Jesus, he was a religious fanatic who was determined to overthrow Rome. He was very passionate about creating an uprising, and then we know that another one of the disciples is Matthew, who's a tax collector who worked for Rome. Matthew spent years exploiting the fishermen, and he would have been the very embodiment of all of the evil that Simon wanted to rebel against. And Jesus, as he's picking his disciples, he says, I think you guys will make a perfect bunch we see this in the early church, Acts 13, the church at Antioch. I want to read you this verse, tells us, and I think Luke includes all of this in Acts 13. He wants us to feel it. He says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. There was Barnabas. Barnabas was a Levite. He was a faithful Jew. But then there was Simeon, who was called Niger. Now, uh, all of the scholars will tell you that that means that he was a dark-skinned African. But then you also had Lucius of Cyrene, which is North African, so he's going to be pretty different than Simeon. And then you have, this one's the craziest to me, Manan, who was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Think about that. And what this probably means is that he was an adoptive son or a foster son. And then the other leader is Saul, who was the Pharisee of Pharisees. <laughs> the church in Antioch, can you imagine what their leadership meetings were like when they first got started? Their backgrounds, incredibly diverse. We see this throughout history. Jesus Christ, more than any other person or cause, he unites, he brings together in peace and unity and harmony, people who are radically different from one another. Even this song, knowing its background, knowing the, the dark period of which it's born, but now people, different languages, rich, poor, white, black, all around our country, all around the world, they're brought together by it. Jesus Christ, why he came is to bring us peace with God, but also to form a community of peace. And this isn't secondary. This isn't an add-on. And all too often what I see in our day is we don't value unity like God values unity. You read the New Testament, again and again there is a call 
for us as a people to maintain the unity of the spirit we have, to preserve the unity, to live at peace with one another. That's what the gospel does. Why and how? And how specifically, what is it about the birth of Christ that draws such different people together? And that leads to my second point, who? Who Jesus came for, what this text tells us about that. We read at the very beginning in verse 8, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Now, shepherds, they, as I mentioned, they were blue-collar guys. But shepherds, more than that, they were considered outsiders in that day. They were religious outsiders because their profession made them perpetually unclean, and it would be very difficult for them to ever actually come into the temple and worship, what they would have to go through. And so they were viewed as religious outsiders, but they were also viewed as moral outsiders. Shepherds had a bad reputation for forgetting whose sheep belonged to whom. And so they were known for stealing sheep, and their reputation was so bad that they were actually not even allowed to testify in court. And yet, when God sent out the one and only one announcement of his son's birth, who did he send it to? These shepherds. He didn't send out a whole bunch of announcements like we might. He sent it to one. I mean, that's all we have in the word. One group of people, and it's these shepherds these outsiders. It's not the statesmen or the CEOs. It's shepherds. And I think one of the reasons the song Go Tell It on the Mountain, which is all about the angel appearing to these shepherds, became one of the most well-known and well-loved African-American spirituals of all time is because it spoke a profound hope to people that the world had forgotten or had at least forgotten were people. This text tells us that God sees and he cares deeply about those the world overlooks. The poor, the shepherds, the slaves. This theme is woven throughout the birth stories of Jesus. Mary, after she gets word that she's going to give birth to a son, she writes a song called the Magnificat. And there's a line, there's, in that song she, she writes these lines. She says, Talking of God, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. So I'm going to say, if you hear this, you're here this morning and you feel like an outsider, Maybe you feel like an outsider here in this building at this time. If you feel overlooked, if you feel forgotten, I want you to be encouraged by this story that God has not forgotten you. God is not blind or indifferent to those who suffer. He's not blind or indifferent to those who have been pushed to the margins of our world. Psalm 34 tells us that the Lord is near the brokenhearted, And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. So if that's you, be encouraged. Now, one of the things we have to acknowledge is while there are some people here who, when I say, do you feel like an outsider? And you say, absolutely. 
you know, I feel like I don't belong, I don't fit anyway, I, I feel like God's forgotten me. There are some people like that in our church, but there are also a lot of people in our church who, who are insiders. There are a lot of you here who would relate more to a CEO than a shepherd. There are a lot of influential and powerful people. Mary talks about God scattering the, the rich, sending the rich away empty. There are a lot of people here who are rather wealthy. And it raises the question, does God only care about the poor? Does he only care about the downtrodden, those cast aside? And the answer, thankfully, is no. Verse 10, right after the angel says, fear not, I bring you good news of a great joy. And then he says, that will be for all the people. So all the people doesn't just mean the shepherds, but it certainly includes the shepherds. We see this in Jesus' life. He would associate sometimes with wealth. He, he was definitely drawn more towards the poor and the outsiders and the, the downcast, but he, he had some wealthy friends. But the question is why? Why was he always moving towards the poor? Why was he always moving to the blue-collar fishermen? Why was he always spending his time with the prostitutes and those who were destitute? I think there are a few answers the New Testament gives us. One is the gospel is only good news to those who know their lives are filled with bad news. If you're struggling for bread, you're struggling to feed your kids, if your body's falling apart, if you feel absolutely stuck in a hopeless situation, then help sounds really, really great. God saying, I'm breaking in, I'm here to help. That sounds like really good news. But if things are going rather smoothly in your life, life's going well, you're building a kingdom that you really, really like, and it's you know starting to really develop into all you'd hoped and dreamed, well, the news of God's coming kingdom doesn't sound so much like good news. It might even sound like bad news. It's not something you want to go tell on the mountain something you want to tell people to tell others about, not you. So one, Jesus was drawn to the downcast because they're the most receptive. And I mean, we, all of our lives are filled with the bad news of sin, but with a certain amount of wealth and comfort, we can distract ourselves and avoid that truth. When you're poor and you're hungry, you can't avoid the truth that sin is an ever-present reality in this world. But there's another reason. Another reason why Jesus went to the outsiders. I think by going, Jesus in going to the outsiders, what he did is he set our world's value system on its head. That it was a prophetic act in many ways. And I get this from Paul, who in 1 Corinthians 1, <laughs> he's writing to the church, and he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Just hit pause for a second. He's writing to the church, and he's like, listen, you guys weren't smart. You didn't have any influence. You were a bunch of nobodies. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence 
of God. Paul is saying God came to to turn this world on its head. We, as a people, we value the strong, the smart, the special, so God chose the weak, the lowly, the despised. We love celebrities, so God said, I'm going to choose a bunch of nobodies. And in doing so, by going to the weak, by including the nobodies in his Christmas story, he not only permanently cemented their place in his kingdom movement, but he demonstrated that to be a part of his kingdom, we must radically rethink our understanding of power, of strength. Think about it. If, if Jesus Christ was born in city center Rome, very, it would be very strategic. And if he sent his one, God sent the one and only announcement of his birth to Caesar, that could also be really strategic because he's got all kinds of connections and all kinds of power. Like on surface level, that would seem like a great mission strategy. The center of Rome, the most powerful man in the world. But what would have happened if that's the way salvation worked? What would have changed? Not very much. Because even if God made it clear, this is good news for all when it's given to those who are at the top, who have all the power, for some reason it never seems to really trickle down to those on the outside, to those on the margins. And so God wanted to cement the place of the outsiders in his kingdom movement. And that doesn't exclude the insiders. But the thing about insiders is you like to build walls and protect who can come in and who can. I mean, that's the fun part about being an insider. You get to decide who to include and exclude. And God said, all right, all the people the world excludes, that's my crew. And you're allowed to come in, but you've got to leave all of that behind. The way you think about why wisdom and strength and success and power, who's really well off, you've got to leave that behind if you're going to come in. Because my kingdom is for the poor, it's for the weak. Jesus said something about that. It's interesting, in Isaiah 11, there's a prophecy about Jesus' birth. It's a pretty famous prophecy about what Jesus will come to do and what he's going to accomplish. In Isaiah, he paints a picture of the kind of peace Jesus is going to accomplish when he writes, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Now, I have a healthy imagination, so on one level, I interpret this literally. In the new heavens and the new earth, I I think that's going to actually happen. The wolf and the lamb are going to lay down together. Later on, Isaiah says that the bear is going to graze the grass like the oxen. But I think there's more going on here, especially when you keep this verse in its context. You see, in this vision, what happens is those who are predators, both predators and prey on this earth, those who are powerful and those who are powerless on this earth, they end up dwelling together in peace. The wolf doesn't have his foot on the head of the lamb. The wolf isn't sitting high on the mountain and the lamb down in the valley, but they're dwelling together. That's challenging. It's challenging on another level in the sense that I think the modern day fantasy 
It's not that the wolf and the lamb would lay down together. The modern day fantasy is that the lamb would grow fangs and claws and come and devour the wolf. Right? That's why we have John Wick 1, 2, 3, and 4. Like we as a people, we love payback. We love revenge. Someone kills a dog, doesn't matter. John Wick's going to kill a million people to pay people back for killing his dog. We as a society, we love that. We love the idea of the powerful being put in their place. And there's, that's not entirely wrong. Some of that's a longing for true justice. But that longing, if it's not, if it's not guarded and protected by what God's words teaches, it just perpetuates the endless cycle of humanity. When you study human history, here's what you see. There are people who, for one reason or another, they become very powerful. They eventually use that power to exploit others. Sometimes it takes a couple of days. Sometimes it takes a couple of years, whatever. Eventually, they exploit or dismiss the poor. That happens long enough. You know what the poor do? Those who've been exploited, they band together. And they rise up and they revolt. And if they're successful, they, you know, they carry out a revolution. And all of a sudden, the tables are turned. And they're powerful. But you know what they never do? They never use their power wisely. Instead, they end up crushing those who once had power. It's like a pendulum that swings back and forth. Lambs become wolves. Wolves become lambs. I mean, this is the essence of what's being called cancel culture in our world. Cancel culture is when you catch someone doing something wrong, almost always it's someone with power, and then people without as much power, without as much influence, they all band together and seek to publicly shame the person and ruin their lives. They'll call their employers, they'll dox them, and you can read story after story of people whose lives have been utterly shattered because of some dumb thing they posted online or some dumb thing that they did, not defending their actions. But we as a society, it's like it feels we take this perverse satisfaction in watching their life implode. And while that might bring satisfaction in the moment, it's never going to bring peace. Now listen, don't mishear me. I'm, I'm not for powerful people being allowed to exploit I love justice on one level. I thank God for justice. But this thirst for justice and the way we try to do it as a people, it never leads to lasting peace. It just deepens divisions. And that's why peace, not just in our world, but peace among God's people, is so often so elusive. It's all about power, and we don't know what to do with it. And we think that that's the way. God's come to show us a different way. God has come to reshape how we think about power, and that leads to my last point, how Christ came. The angel says, for unto you, to the shepherds, good news, great joy for everyone. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. That's the Messiah, the long-awaited one who would bring victory over God's enemies. The Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Now, I know we're all shocked by this verse. Oh, God came as a baby? I'm like, 
we know this, and so it doesn't shock us, but it should. Think about this. The angels, who are terrifying, by the way. First words, don't be afraid. Shepherds, okay. The kingdom is coming in power, and I'm going to give you a sign. All right, what's the sign? You know what the sign wasn't? It wasn't warriors riding in on chariots. It was a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. Lying in a manger, which is a feed trough. So if he just would have said wrapped in swaddling, well, every baby in the town probably, but this one is, is in a feed trough because there's no room for him anywhere else. Is there anything more powerless than a newborn baby? Yeah, maybe you want a newborn baby who's so poor he has to use a manger for his crib. We don't know what to do with that. Utter powerlessness, right? Well, maybe in one sense. Ronald Rollheiser, he writes about this, and it's so helpful. He says, in our world, power is understood to be real only when it can forcibly assert itself to make others obey it. For us, strong people have power. Political rulers have power. Economic systems have power. Billionaires have power. The rich and the famous have power. Muscular bodies have power. And the playground bully has power. Power that can make you buckle under one way or the other. When we think of power in our world, we think of money, we think of influence, we think of muscle, we think of guns. We think of being able to force people. I love how he puts it, of making people buckle under. And this is why the Christmas story, if you actually press in, it really trips people up. Because God's plan for dealing with all the evil and the injustice in the world, what was his plan? He sends a little baby. There's no power here. It's weakness. But Rollheiser continues. He says that power of making people buckle under, he says such a notion of power is adolescent and superficial. He said power that can make you buckle under is only one kind of power and ultimately not the most transformative kind. Real power is moral. Real power is the power of truth, beauty, and patience. Paradoxically, real power generally looks helpless. If you put a powerfully muscled athlete, the CEO of a powerful corporation, a playground bully, an Academy Award-winning movie star, and a baby in the same room, who has the most power? Ultimately, it's the baby. At the end of the day, The baby's helplessness overpowers physical muscle, economic muscle, and charismatic muscle. Babies cleanse a room morally. They do exorcisms. Even the most callous watch their language around the baby. That's the kind of power God revealed in the incarnation. Against almost all human expectation, God was born into this world, not as Superman or superstar, but as a baby, helpless to care for his own needs. See, what we celebrate at Christmas, that God did not come as a fearsome warrior, he came as a feeble child, that has to redefine and reshape how we understand powerful, who's powerful and who's not. The fact that God didn't come with dramatic displays of might, 
the fact that he didn't come like many of us wish he would have, as like an even bigger bully to bully all the bullies, the fact that he came as a baby, weak, poor, and seemingly helpless. It's got to change how we think about things. We look at that and we might think weakness, but we know it wasn't real weakness. It was apparent weakness. Because in that apparent weakness, he accomplished something that no amount of human effort, no amount of money, no, no sacrifices, no burnt offerings, no act of generosity, no rigorous acts of repentance, no dutiful acts of moral responsibility. He did something that we could never do, even the most powerful. In his weakness, both in his birth and his death, you remember what they said? He saved others. Can he not save himself? It was through his apparent weakness that he reconciled us to God. This has to transform how we understand the well-off and the powerful. Power, according to the Bible, it's not about being right and strong and influential. True power comes when we acknowledge that we're so often weak, we're so often wrong, we're so often lost. True power comes through repentance, through being reconciled with God to the way the world really is. True power is found in humility in us. One of the original verses of Go Tell It on the Mountain, like a lot of the old great Christmas songs, this is a verse that's been utterly eliminated in our day because we don't want to hear these truths, but uh, the original lyric said, He made me a watchman upon a city wall, and if I am a Christian, I am the least of all. a reference to Ephesians 3.8 where Paul says, I am the least of all the saints. A thought that Paul teases out further in 1 Timothy 1.15 where he says this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came, you could say was born, into this world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. See, real power is found in honesty and humility. It's not found in accumulation. It's actually found, according to Jesus, in emptying ourselves. Real power is found through the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. And all of that, that's what unites us. And the way it unites us isn't because we all agree on certain doctrinal truths, even though we should, and we do. The way the gospel unites us, it's not. Because if it's just about getting the truths right, then that's like, that can make us so prideful, can't it? Like, we've, you agree with me on this one? I agree with you. All right. We're the really special Christians, and anyone who doesn't agree with us probably isn't a Christian. That's not what unites us. What unites us is that to be a Christian, you have to be humble to the dust. You have to say that he bled and died for me. This is where Jesus Christ, he strips us of our pride and our self-righteousness. You know what happens when people are stripped of their pride and their self-righteousness? Like their just determination to always be right and the anger when they feel like they've been wronged. 
when we're stripped of our envy and our jealousy, you know what happens? You get a community of peace. Forgiveness. Compassion. Generosity. I would say you also get a community of power. The early church, there are three reasons the early church exploded. It just blew up took over the world. You know what they are? Number one, they loved their enemies. And no one knew what to do with that. Number two, they cared for the poor, not just their own poor, but all of the poor. And number three, they had deep unity across every worldly division. I'd say all three of those are only possible. You can't love your enemies. You won't live a life of real generosity, and it's so hard to get along with people who are different then you, the only way you get there is when you've been humbled. When you realize that God had to become a baby to rescue you. And in that humility and that apparent weakness, we actually find what I would say, real power. What I mean is all the stuff that masquerades as power in our world, so much of it's just a show and it's born out of weakness and insecurity and fear People bragging about their money or <laughs> showboating what they have. What are they trying to do? They're trying to say, I'm important. Real power is saying, oh, I don't need those things to demonstrate my importance. The world, I mean, we live in a society where no one can ever admit that they've ever done anything wrong. Real power, and something that I think is deeply prophetic in our day, is to say, that's on me. Our world, how do apologies go? I'm sorry if my act might have been misconstrued or hurt someone. That was never my intent. What do you mean? You lied. You stole from people. You cheated. Like you hurt others and you did so intentionally and you can't even admit it. Why? It's the weakness of this world. Real power is the power to say, it was me. I did wrong and I'm sorry. And here's how I want to make things right. Will you forgive me? That's prophetic and it's powerful because no one else has that kind of strength. The humility that Christ brings about in us, that's what enables us to endure suffering with patience. I mean, the greatest stories throughout church history of the martyrs, it's those who've suffered in silent, nonviolent protest. If I perish, I perish. They didn't create marketing campaigns, social media, attacking their enemies. All of this, what I'm trying to get at, and I would have said this at the beginning, a lot of you, especially a lot of the men in the room would have tuned me out. I would argue that real power is absolutely wrapped up in vulnerability. And that's what we see in Jesus Christ, being born as a baby. Is there anything more vulnerable? Real power, it's not being able to put on the thickest mask or the strongest armor. It's being able to open yourselves to others as God opened himself and became vulnerable to death, even death on a cross. So I want to leave by just asking you, who or what might God be calling you to open yourself up to? 
And there's there's a, a lot of different ways you can answer this question. Maybe you need to open yourself up to that you've been wrong about some things that you feel like you can't admit you were wrong about. It's one of the things that I love about Christianity. It's changing your mind often means that you've grown. Maybe some of you need to open up with someone that you trust about sin that's, which the author of Hebrews says it so easily entangles us. The gospel allows us to say, yeah, I've been entangled. And you need to tell someone you trust, I need help. Maybe it's someone that you're at odds with. Maybe it's a mentality or a condescension. Maybe it's family. A lot of us are going to see family in the coming weeks. Family is great and hard. Maybe it's in generosity. Like you know someone who's in need and what our world views as the greatest, most powerful thing at all, money. You're like, I can help them. I can open myself to them. I don't know, but who is God calling you to open yourself to? What is he inviting you into? As you think about that question, let's be reminded that on the night before Jesus' betrayal, we think about opening ourselves in vulnerability. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus said to his disciples, this is my body that's broken for you. This is my blood that's been poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is where we're reminded once again that Jesus Christ, (laughs) the most powerful act ever, was him giving his life for us and our sins. As we come to the table, we're reminded that we share a loaf and we share a cup, that we're united with one another, that we don't take communion by ourselves. We do it as a body because Jesus saved us to be a people. So I encourage you to come and to feast, to be reminded of the love he's shown you, but also to ask and to pray with open hands, Lord, what might you be calling me to? If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.